Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we experience the joy of the Lord in our fellowship together as we taste just a, a smidgen of what it will be like when one day we stand with you and with one another in glory at the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And then throughout eternity as we explore the depths of all that God is and all that God has made. Father, we ask you to bless this hour and that this will be a, a time in which we will discover a little bit more of your nature and of your character and what it is that you have done that is to reflect into our hearts truth that will help us to live for you in a way that pleases you. Father, I pray your blessing on every single individual in this room today. And for those who are away uh, at this time and those who are ill, touch them, Lord, and minister to them. And Father, we ask that you will glorify yourself here in our midst and throughout this complex this morning in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of Joshua, and we will begin reading at verse 21. Joshua 11, 21. Then Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their division by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Let me again remind you, it's important as you read a passage such as this, that you understand that it was not characteristic of the Hebrews to always write in chronological order. We're accustomed to the Greek tradition of, of things being cause and effect relationships and, and moving through. Uh, I have a very difficult time recounting, for example, what's happened in my life without starting in the beginning and working through it, and not just jumping in here and there. But as you read this passage here, this is a summary statement, even as the next chapter is a summary statement. And, and this particular passage speaks ahead of even the moment that we were talking about in the flow of the conquest. And statements are made here which go beyond what we've come to yet because it says there in verse 23 that Joshua gave the land out for an inheritance. Well, he hasn't yet, really, chronologically, but this is speaking kind of an overview statement here in this particular passage. Particularly is this true as we think of the concept of the Anakim. Joshua makes a big point here about destroying the Anakim. These are the sons of Anak, who were a clan of giants, apparently. And the question is, why does he emphasize their destruction? Why, why does he make a point of cutting off the Anakim, specifically the Anakim? And I think that the primary reason for this, for, for stressing this point, was that it was the existence of this very clan that had been used as an excuse by the ten spies 40 years before for saying why Israel should not even attempt to enter the land. To, to just underscore this and remind us of, of that, let's go back to uh, Numbers chapter 13 for a moment. In Numbers chapter 13, reading at verse 30, 
And, and this is very significant because what it says here also relates to the Anakim directly too because it says, then Caleb quieted the people. And by the way, as we'll see, it is Caleb who asks for the mountain where Hebron was, Hebron which was Kiriath Arba, and Arba was the name of the greatest of the Anakim at that time. Then, Josh, uh, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, why should should by all means, we, we should, why, why, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we surely can surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Notice the exaggeration. All the men we saw in it were men of great size. Well, that's baloney. There were only a few Anakim. There also we saw, and now he's implying as if the Anakim were just an extremely tall, large group, and the others were all big too, which was, of course, untrue. For there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. We saw these big dudes there, and we don't want to go in there. Now, the term Nephilim is found in the Old Testament only in this passage and in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, when it's referring back to the time of the flood. And th throughout Jewish and, and church tradition, it, that has been defined as a race of giants. Their origin is unknown. We, we do not know, for example, who Anak was, except he was the father of the Anakim. In fact, if you look up the word Anak, you will discover that they say that the origin of the word Anak is even uncertain. They don't even know what language it actually comes from, the word Anak. Now Moses knew the Anakim were there, and God, through Moses, warned Israel of the Anakim. But he says, I promise you I will give you victory over them. Well, worry about them. You, you know, we have the phrase today, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Isn't that something like that? <laughs> you're not always too sure if you're standing, you know, with your nose in some big guy's navel. Uh, you're not really sure that, that that's always true. But here, here, here uh, you are looking at these, these giants called the Anakim. And God says, I will give you victory over them. It, it's a piece of cake. Don't worry about them. And then God goes on to say, but it is not you will not have victory over them because you are so righteous, but because they are so wicked. Let me read the passage that makes that quite clear from Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 9. Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven a great people and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? That was a, that was a statement, a, a slogan of that day. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will sub subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart, 
when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is, now notice God repeats this for a third time. It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. One of the things you find about God is he calls it exactly as it is. Some of you remember Red Skelton, right? And Red Skelton, when he played uh, the little guy, he'd say, I just calls them the way I sees them, you know, uh, because he was so blunt uh, in things that he said, you know. And God does exactly that. God makes it quite clear who we really are. And to Israel, he was going to give the land because he sovereignly chose to give them the land, not because they were a righteous people and deserved it. You and I, I think, if we've walked very long with the Lord, are very grateful the Lord doesn't give us what we deserve. Because we're told in Scripture that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who is immutable. And he gives his good gifts because of his love, not because we deserve anything. And, and what he's saying to Israel here, you don't dare think that you are getting the, the land because you deserve it and therefore boast because we are such a wonderful people, God gave us the land. Jeremiah speaks about boasting. You know the passage. I'll just read it to you quickly from the ninth chapter of Jeremiah. Je Jeremiah records this. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let it, him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And Paul echoes those things in, in his writings. I think it's very important for us to always put ourselves in the place of the Israelites, to know that as Israel was, so we are. As they were a stubborn and stiff-necked people, so we are. And we need God's grace as much as Israel needed God's grace. I mean, uh, to me, as I read the Old Testament, it's like looking in a mirror. Well, this, this passage in, jo in Joshua tells us this, that the Anakim were wiped out of all of the hill country, but it says they remained in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, which means on the Philistine plain. They remained there, and they would be on the Philistine plain for quite a while, and they would still become a troublesome people, these Anakim would, even in the days of the judges, and they would last on even until the days of David the king, and we all know that so well, don't we? Because one of the greatest stories uh, of the Old Testament, which is told particularly in a Sunday school to little kids is of David's great victory over one of the sons of Anak who was known as Goliath of Gath. And that is one of the great celebrated victories of history. And one of the great physical celebrations of that, of course, is the great statue that Michelangelo carved out of marble of David 
at, at the moment that he is dealing with, with Goliath in his heart and his mind and looking at this despicable one and about ready to put a rock between his eyes. Son of Anak, that's who he was. That's who Goliath was. And if we interpret the passages correctly about his physical size, he was somewhere between 9 and 10 feet tall, which, of course, if he played today in modern sports, he'd make a wreck out of them, you know, the whole thing. I mean, he would be standing eye-high with the basket <laughs> in basketball, just about. And, of course, in football, <laughs> he'd be a one-man line, I would suspect. So the sons of Anak would be destroyed eventually. One, one of the things that Scripture seems to teach us about them was that their gigantism was hereditary because it says the sons of Anak, the sons of Anak. It seems that it was a hereditary thing. To what degree there was any kind of spiritual connection with this, we can only nebulously make that connection by going back to Genesis 6-4 and talking about the Nephilim in the days of Noah and how they were apparently giants in the earth and they were evil. And, and so there may be that connection, but, uh, you know, the scripture does not say that specifically. Well, after uh, an estimated seven years of warfare, whereby Israel, we're told, conquered the land all the way from Baal Gad in the north to Mount Halak in the south, and I pointed those out last time, uh, you should have a copy of this map. And there you see Baalgad up here in the north. And uh, Mount Halleck isn't shown, but it's down here in the south, about at the same latitude as Kadesh Barnea, but further east. And so that is, those are the parameters of the land that had been conquered at that moment. Those were not the parameters of the promised land, however. God had promised more than that, but that's what had been conquered uh, at that time. And we're told in, the, in chapter 11 that after this conquest had been made that the land had rest from war. And then Israel would get to the purpose and get to the program of dividing the land up, of allotting it to the numerous tribes and settling into a relatively peaceful condition. This is sort of the story of Joshua in summary. Now, the 12th chapter of Joshua, we will not be reading through that uh, chapter because it is a recapitulation of what we've already talked about in detail. It's the story of the conquest of Transjordan, and that's, of course, the land on the other side of the Jordan. Trans means across, across the Jordan over here, and then the conquest of Canaan also. The first portion of the chapter uh, summarizes the defeat of the Amorites. Remember, the Amorites lived over here in, in the east, and they occupied the region all the way from the Arnon all the way up to Mount Hermon in the north. And the various Amorite nations were defeated by, the tr by, by Israel. And Gilead and Bashan became part of Israelite possession as a result. And Gilead is this region here between the Yarmuk and the Arnon, or actually the north end of the Dead Sea, and Bashan is up north from the Yarmuk up towards Mount Hermon. So these two territories were added. And by the way, Bashan is sometimes called Golan. And we know about the Golan Heights, don't we? Because it's been a major issue in modern times. 
The eastern side of the Jordan Valley was also included in this initial conquest. So if you can visualize again, let me turn around so that I'm looking the same way you are. <laughs> and this is west and, and this is east as you're looking at the map. You're coming from Gilead, you're dropping down the escarpment into the Jordan Valley to the river. So from the river, the plain of the river, up the escarpment and over onto the highlands, all of that to the desert, to the actual area where the desert begins to pick up because the uh, Syrian desert is immediately to the east of, of this area. You have the land that was occupied by two and a half tribes of Israel. I, I think most of you are probably familiar with the concept of the rain shadow. I Israel is subjected to cyclonic storms just as we are here. The cyclonic storms we receive here come out of the Gulf of Alaska. The cyclonic storms that Israel receives come out of the Icelandic low. And of course Israel is deep in the continent and so the, the storms have already passed through much of Europe. And of course the Alps rake out a great deal of the moisture. But as the moisture comes to the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and sweeps in off the Mediterranean. It, it goes up the slopes of the Is Israelite and Judean highlands. As it does, it does bring rain all along that side. But then as the, rain, as the air masses drop into the escarpment of the Jordan Valley, they're heated by compression and it creates what is known as a rain shadow. And so the valley of the Jordan River is very dry. And then as the air masses sweep back up to the higher heights to the east because the, um, the heights in Israel itself run under 3,000 feet in elevation, whereas on the east side of the Jordan they rise as much as 4,000 feet. And so as they sweep up there, what little moisture is left is dropped along that front side of the uh, Gilead and Bashan Plateau. And then as it moves on out, it moves out in the Syrian desert and, and you're in the desert. You know, there's no rain out there. And so you get more rain in, in Canaan, a little bit less rain in Transjordan. So you know, one is a little bit more lush than the other, and the Jordan Valley in between is a dry place. It's a whole lot like California, where the rains, the storms sweep in across the um, coastal plain, the coastal hills, then they drop into the dry Central Valley, then go up into the Sierras, and they drop into Nevada. And of course, you know what Nevada's like as a result. Same, same concept here as you have here in, um, in Palestine. So, for, for Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they took the lesser quality territory. The lesser quality territory. It had enough grass to support sheep and goats, and that's what they were happy about. And they didn't think so much about the fact that they would eventually settle down and grow grain. And, and you do, you can grow grain there, but not as well as you can in Palestine itself, Canaan. Well, the second portion of this chapter deals with the conquest of Canaan and focuses on the defeat of 31 Canaanite kings which are listed there and that's one of the reasons I'm not reading the chapter because it, it, you know it, it, it the king of Jerusalem won, the king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, you know it gets, gets highly repetitive in there but it gives a list of these kings. Now who are these kings? What are we talking about here? Are we just talking about a bunch of village mayors who've been elevated to the level of king? No. I think these are best understood as city rulers of city-states. If, 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 if it's been a while since you studied your ancient history, uh, let me remind you that city-states were very, very important in almost all of, ancient, of the ancient world. Egypt was made up of city-states which eventually were merged into the state of, of Egypt. 
Uh, Mesopotamia was made up of all kinds of city-states, names of which, uh, some of which were familiar, Babylon, Ur. And then Greece, of course, was made up in its ancient period of time of city-states, which were known as Pali, and, and we carry that over into our language because we have Indianapolis, and we have Annapolis, and Minneapolis, you know, the city-state of Mini or whatever, you know, Minnehaha, which is, of course, a merging of Indian and Greek. A lot of American names are really weird because we have uh, European names merged with Indian names and it, it really can be uh, confusing. The total number of towns and villages is not listed here. When you read through this list and you see Jerusalem, Jarmuth, Eglon, uh, Debir, Harmouth, Libna, these, these are not all the towns in Israel or in, in Canaan. These are just the capitals because often it says Hebron with all of its villages which is a statement of a city-state. This is the capital city, and surrounding it is all this land with its towns and villages, which are centered upon the main city, which is a walled city, and, and the villages are not walled. They're just open agricultural communities. And so there were hundreds of these villages and towns which Israel captured in addition to these particular walled cities. And the villages and towns were not difficult to capture because they were largely undefended. Now, the Canaanites were frequently under the hegemony of Egypt or maybe the Hittites uh, who, who lived in the north and ruled what we today call Turkey or various Mesopotamian powers which extended their authority over there. Uh, you, you, you remember Mesopotamia was always messing around over here because you may remember in the days of Abraham. Abraham fought off an army of Mesopotamian kings that came over to, to fight. And that's right after defeating those is when he met Melchizedek. In spite of the fact that Canaan was often under the domination of Egypt, you still had all these petty little states with their kings. And, and for the most part, they were locally autonomous. That is, they ran their own little affairs here and they just had to pay lip service at least or possibly tribute to their overruling power, be it Egypt, be it the Hittites or, or whoever it might be. And so you have these petty little warlords here all through the land. And what it is in effect saying here is that the land from Mount Halak to Baalgad, which was captured by Israel, was divided into 31 city-states. So they are capturing 31 locally autonomous political units here and taking them under their authority and destroying that political setup because they are going to reestablish it as a tribal government with this tribe here, this tribe here, this tribe here, so that you will have tribal governments instead of local city-state governments. So they would totally change the political pattern as it existed because these city-states probably were not more than maybe 100, 200, 300 square miles. They were all fairly small. And, and the, the king was, you know, he might be better called a chief, but whatever he was, uh, the scripture refers to him as a king. Now, because the scripture tells us that in Canaan there were many ethnicities, you know, we kept reading the list of the Jebusites and the Perizzites and, you know, the Hivites and all of these people, it's very likely that these city-states city were often hostile one to another. And they only joined up when they were threatened with mutual annihilation. And that's why we had the formation of the Southern Confederacy in the, uh, by, headed by Jerusalem and the Northern Confederacy headed by Hatzor. These people joined together for mutual salvation, you know. 
Otherwise, they often fought each other. And that's why they were so warlike and had chariots and horses and armies and all these kinds of things, because they were frequently at war. It's like looking at the Greek states back in the, in the Homeric era. All the Greek states had their armies because they were always fighting each other. They would fight each other more than they would fight anybody else, it seems. So what you have is a, is a list from verse 9 through verse 24. You have a list of the capitals of city-states. Okay? So Jerusalem was the capital, and the towns and villages out around Jerusalem all owed allegiance to the king or chief in Jerusalem. And the same was true at Hebron, and Jarmuth, and Laish, and Eglon, and Gezer, and Debir, and on down the whole list there of 31. Let's read on in chapter 13. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. When the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. <laughs> and very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains. All the region of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites from from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, and the Avite. To the south, all the lands of the Canaanite and, and Merar that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorite and the land of the Gebelite, and all Lebanon toward the east, from Baalgath below Mount Hermon, as far as Label Hamath. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, as far as Mizrafath Maim, all the Sidonians I will drive out from before the sons of Israel, only allot it to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now you might look through that and say, big list of names I can't pronounce, so why, why should I read it? First of all, when you study a passage like this, you need to get a map out and find out, not, not a modern map, of course, but uh, a map of the ancient world, and, and find where these places are, because once you find where these places are, it begins to make sense. But, but the key in this passage, um, I'll highlight here in a minute. Joshua had led Israel now for many years, and he was coming towards the end of his life. His end is not yet, but coming towards the end. And God is saying here, all of the land which I've commanded you to conquer has not been conquered yet. And then he lists the areas that have not yet been conquered. And he says the Philistine plain. Well, that's this area right along over here from Gaza up to Joppa. And, uh, you know, some of those cities listed on there like Eglon are on here, the others are not. But they're all right in this area right in here. This is the Philistine plain. That area had not yet been conquered because we know from the previous chapter, that is the 11th chapter, that it said some of the Anakim still lived there in that area. Secondly, the land of the Geshurites. Now in chapter 12, verse 5, it also mentions Geshurites, but these are two different people. The Geshurites of verse 12, of chapter 12, are up here. These Geshurites are down here. They're over towards Egypt up to the Philistia. So it's along the Mediterranean coast between Egypt and the southern end of the Philistine plain. That's the Geshurites here because that's what it says in the passage. Thirdly, the third region not conquered is Phoenicia. 
that starts with Akko here and goes up past Tyre and Sidon and up off the top of the map up here to Gebel. Now Gebel will later be known by the Greek name Biblos, from which we get the word Bible. And in between is Beirut. And of course we know about Beirut today because it's been very much in the news for 20 years now. But uh, Beirut uh, was right in, in that particular area. Gebel was about 15 miles north of uh, Beirut. And then Lebanon. Now today all of this is Lebanon, but the Lebanon being referred to here is not the coast, but inland. There's a mountain range that runs through here. As soon as you come in from the coast, there's a range called the Lebanon Mountains. And then there's a valley, and then there's another range called the Anti-Lebanon Range. And once you pass that range, you're out into, into the Syrian region and, and to Damascus. So you have two ranges with a valley in between, and that's the region being referred to here, primarily the valley in between, but the two mountains, the Lebanon Range and the Anti-Lebanon Range. The Latani River runs between the two uh, ranges. It's in the valley between the two ranges. So there's mountains here and there's mountains here. Okay. So that is what's being referred to. So Israel was supposed to conquer all the way over to the border of Egypt here and all the way up off the top of this map. That's what they were supposed to conquer. But all they conquered was from here to here. So this part they didn't conquer and this part they didn't conquer. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying you haven't done it yet. And God said in this passage, I have promised you I will drive the people out of these regions too. Therefore, they are supposed to be included in the allotment. When you start dividing land amongst the nine and a half tribes who were to be west of the Jordan, you are to allot them land in Phoenicia and in Philistia and in the Geshurite land further to the east. Uh, I'm sorry, further to the west. But you know what's interesting is? Most of that land will not come under the control of Israel until the days of King David. We, during David, that the Philistine plain will be conquered and that interior Lebanon will be conquered. And even in David's day, Phoenicia, coastal Phoenicia, would not be conquered. It has never been conquered by Israel. The closest Israel came to conquering it was back in 1982 when their tank forces drove up to Tyre. You know, that's about as close as they've ever come to conquering actually coastal Phoenicia. So God said, this is your land. I want you to allot it to the tribes and I'm going to drive those people out of the land. But you know what Israel did? Israel got tired. We've been fighting for seven years. We're tired. We don't want to keep on fighting. We want to settle down. Even though God said, you're not done yet. It's easy to get tired, isn't it? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. I find the older I get, the easier that happens. <laughs> and sometimes it's easy to not go ahead and pursue what God has said to do to its completion. Oh God, it's good enough. <laughs> My father always told me, if you can't do it right, don't do it at all. I said, fine, I won't do it at all. <laughs> but he didn't really give me that option. <laughs> he was saying to me, do it right. And so that's what God is saying to Israel, do it right. I have said to conquer all the way up to Labo Hamath, the entrance to Hamath, which is way up in the north part of Syria. You're to conquer up to there, and you're to conquer over to the Egyptian, the, the kind of the nebulous border of Egypt over there. It's all yours. But the Israelites, we're tired. We want to settle down. And so they did not conquer that land and they did not wipe out those Canaanites. 
and the people there, and they would have trouble with them for the entire rest of their lives. Not only their lives, but generation after generation after generation would have trouble. Because of the Philistines, and because of the Phoenicians, and because of the Syrians, they'd always have trouble. And what is also further interesting is they didn't even wipe out all the Canaanites within the land they did conquer. We already knew, of course, about the Hivites, uh, uh, yes. But Joshua 13, verse 13 tells us, But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Maacathites, for Geshur and Maacath lived among Israel until this day. And what he's talking about there is this area from the Sea of Galilee up to Mount Hermon, right up, right up in here. That was within, here's Baalgad as north of that. It's south of Baalgad, north of the Sea of Galilee. And they didn't even wipe out the Canaanites who lived there. They left them there. Let them stay. They simply got tired. We're tired of attacking city walls. And of course, I think we can sympathize with them. But God was not done yet because he had offered them a greater dream, a greater hope. But they were willing to take less. They were willing to take less. And as a result, they and their generations after them would all pay the price. They would pay the price of not having done the job that God called them to do. Joshua was told to oversee the apportionment of the land for the nine and a half tribes of Israel that were in Canaan. Moses had already allotted the two and a half tribes that were in Transjordan, the territory that was to belong to them. And again, in, in chapter 13, uh, I don't want to read from verse 8 down uh, following because it's simply a recapitulation of what we have already studied. It describes what was given to Reuben, what was given to Gad, and what was given to the one-half tribe of Manasseh. Now again, using this map, you'll notice that the river that comes into the middle of the Dead Sea from the east is the Arnon. The Arnon was the southern border of the Transjordanian conquest of the Israelites. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, occupied from the Arnon, where's the Arnon? The Arnon here, up to about the latitude of Jericho. Where you see Jericho is, if you drew a straight line across, that was the Reuben area. Gad, from, from that line up to just north of the Jabbok, that was the tribe of Gad, as well as the Jordan Valley all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. So they, they, they had the bottom of the, of the valley floor all the way to the Sea of Galilee, plus the top of the plateau from about Jericho to just north of the Jabbok. The half-tribe of Manasseh was given everything from north of the Jabbok River to Mount Hermon up here, but not the Jordan Valley. So they were up on the plateau on top. And, and they were given a, a larger area. They were a big tribe, by the way. Manasseh was a big tribe, so half and half was still a lot of people. And so that was the territory that was, was given to them. And what was important was that they were to occupy that land and use it as a buffer for, for Canaan. And anybody attacking in towards Canaan would have to come through the land of Manasseh, the land of Gad, the land of the Reubenites first, whether they came from the southeast or the northeast. And so they would be the, they'd carry the brunt of the attack at first. And so they were kind of a buffer for the rest of the land. And they, they, they did suffer many attacks, by the way, from peoples coming from the northeast and the southeast. Nobody came directly east because there's a big desert out there. <laughs> and people always circumvented that desert. It's still there, by the way. 
<laughs> so these are the locations of the two and a half tribes. Now what we're going to be reading about as we go further in the book is where God placed the other nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan River and where God placed the Levites as they would be scattered amongst the tribes. And what is interesting is we'll come in the uh, 14th chapter to where Caleb says to Joshua, give me that mountain. And, and he goes up and takes Hebron, but then Hebron is given to the Levites. But he doesn't complain because he has all the territory around Hebron that, that is part of uh, Caleb's possession. T Caleb was of the tribe of Judah. So Judah occupied the southern part of the land. And, and so often, even though there were 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, its name became embossed on, on a large hunk of the, of the conquered land, so much so that eventually it would be known as Judah, and even in the days of Jesus, Judea, as separate from the northern area, which would become Ephraim, or later Israel. Well, next week we will uh, look at chapter 14, 